Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. At 7 o'clock tonight, we'll be going to the Hamilton City of Hamilton Town Hall coronavirus meeting where you will get answers, hopefully, to a lot of questions that you have. I don't know what the questions are going to be that are going to be asked there, but I have a bunch that have come up in the last few days, and I haven't heard answers to this yet. And so I thought we would bring back our friend, Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid from McMaster University. We had him on last week. He did an exceptional, he's been on here a bunch of times in the last few days, but he did an exceptional job last week answering these questions that I had. Every single one he gave an answer to. So we thought we'd bring him back. Doctor, thanks for doing this again today. Of course. Happy to speak to you again, Tom. Uh, I should rephrase. You gave answers to every single one of the questions, but one. And that's because I don't think anybody had the answer. And so I'm going to ask you again, because it's not that you were wrong. I, it's a it's a bizarre question that I don't know that we know the answer fully to. And let's start here. Um, there are pockets of the world and even pockets of our country where the coronavirus seems to be much, much, much worse. And I don't just mean numbers. I mean the impact of it, That like little pockets where people are getting sick and dying, Bob Cajun, that nursing home, for example, whereas other places we're seeing people get the illness or get the virus and they don't seem to be falling all that ill. Do we know why it, I know it affects different people with, if you have a precondition or something, but do we, are there, are there different strains of it that we know of yet? Is there some reason why some people really get nailed and others don't? Uh, so we actually do have an answer for that now. Uh, we don't. There is no different strains. We don't believe that there are different strains to fight virus as of now, from what we could tell from data and what we've studied so far. What the difference that plays out in different contexts is really comes down to the health system, Scott. Uh, so when we look at countries like have amazing, incredible health systems that are able to adapt and respond to pandemics like this so fast, so effective. People that come in with a, you know, coronavirus 19 positive and we're able to treat them right away, they have severe complications and they recover and they get out, you'll see that their duration of illness is much shorter than in countries where, for example, they don't have testing kits, it takes forever to get the results back, and God forbid they need a ventilator, we don't have access to one. So you'll see that their death rates are much higher. So I don't think it's actually geographically based or that different strains of the virus. I think it comes down to how much is the country where this virus is playing out is able to respond to the pandemic and how much is the health system itself able to respond to get ahead of this. That said, did we not believe that Italy had an excellent health system prior to this? Sure, but the problem with Italy that many of the studies now that are coming out is that uh, although Italy did have an incredible health system, they were a bit too late in the game to get ahead of this. And by that, I mean, just to be very clear here, they weren't enforcing like we did social distancing. They weren't closing down their borders fast enough. They weren't uh, closing down public essential services, for for example. Uh, they also did not prepare that uh, they're aging. They have a big aging population, majority males who smoke. So all those factors really played against Italy's case scenario that hopefully we don't uh, want to see here in Canada. All right. Uh, Steve Buse reported in the spec yesterday that the, I, I can't remember what the exact number is that we're saying right now is the official number for Hamilton, how many cases there are. I think it's now in the 200s. Am I right? Something like that? It's 112. As of 112. Time, okay. Yeah. Uh, Steve reported that the number, some people are saying now, is probably closer to 1,400, but we don't know really because we don't have the test back and some people haven't been tested. Is it plausible that 1,400, 1,500 people in Hamilton have this? 
you know, I will say this, Scott, I think that it is possible. Uh, why I say that is because it is true. There is this idea that, uh, and we know that to be a, a partially true, that the tests are taking a bit longer to get the results back. We haven't tested everybody that we need to test. So the reason why I think, you know, we, it's very hard to say it's going to be in the thousands or a specific figure. But yes, it, it, uh, right now, according to Hamilton, we have 112 cases. Will I be surprised if the numbers are more around 700, 800, close to 1,000? No. Uh, I think as time progresses, you're going to hear a lot of people talk about the surge in April. And by that, we mean is that we'd be getting more test results back. So by then, we will have much higher numbers of people that we've been able to test. But if that's correct, and I and I believe it probably is, and Steve's a great reporter. I mean, his numbers, your, your information, I mean, if I believe that to be true... Mm-hmm. Uh, not to be a dismisser of this, but doesn't that then, uh, the mortality rate, the percentage then drops considerably? If, if we suddenly have 800 cases versus 112, the percentage of people dying is way, way down. Does that not make this somewhat less scary? Sure. So there is this argument now that everybody's talking about staying away from reporting on the number of positive cases and really focusing on the number of deaths. Mm-hmm. because they tell us a whole lot more than number of positive cases. And, and just to be clear with our audience today, the reason why we say that is, you know, uh, Canada right now has around uh, the total number of cases, according to the government, is 9,000. The total number of deaths in Canada as of now is around 105, 107. The reason why we're saying the number of deaths are more important is because 81% of people that will get coronavirus-19 will be mild illness and will recover. So how much does that really tell us about how, how much we need to amp up our system and stay ahead of this? Not as much as the death rate. And, but the death rate is the total number of cases of people that died because of coronavirus-19. So that's, I think, that you're going to see even, I noticed with Public Health Agency of Canada website, they've actually changed the way they uh, project and put out their data. They're now really focusing a lot more on the number of COVID-19 deaths, and you'll see it on their map, and even across all the journalistic platforms. People are really now putting forward first the number of deaths and then the number of confirmed cases. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still with Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid from McMaster. A lot of questions that have come up in the last number of days. Again, at 7 o'clock, you'll get some answers to others with the town hall that we're going to pick up here on CHML. But in the meantime... Uh, doctor, you said a couple moments ago, just before the break, that you talked about the surge that we heard. We heard the Premier today talk mm-hmm. about the surge that's coming. Is that a guess, or do we somehow know that this surge is coming? I think we do know. I think it'd be very hard to say it's a guess, uh, given the how this has played out in other contexts. And from what we know of how many tests we're still waiting to get results back, that surge will happen because, A, we will have more test results back, and, B, we would have tested more people. So by testing more people... We expect that we'll see an increased number of COVID-19 positive cases. We also have to remind everybody that in Canada now, we surpassed the number of travel-related COVID-19 cases. And now the majority of our cases, more than half, are due to community transmission. Um, And so that's, I think, part of the reasons why we'll still see a spike in April. But the surge that we talk about then, and we just were speaking a moment ago, that a lot of these 81%, I think you said, would be mild symptoms to none. So is the surge simply a number because now we're going to get all these results back and suddenly the numbers go up because we get the results back? Or are we expecting truly a surge in really bad cases all of a sudden? That's hard to tell right now. We don't know how people are going to, each individual is so different, how they react to COVID-19 virus, whether they also have an underlying health condition 
a disability. We know now that people of lower socioeconomic status don't do as well with COVID-19 virus. So there's multiple factors that play on how that the virus will play out uh, in people. The 81% is based on the world population who got COVID-19 uh, and recovered. We've seen it to be mild. But just to be clear to answer your question, the, the surge is going to be based on the number of positive cases. And again, we go back to our earlier conversation, you and I, where that what's going to be really keen for all of us to look at is the number of deaths, because right. that will tell us how many of those cases are really severe and have put a burden on our, our health system. Let me go to one question that I have heard more in the last couple of days than and probably any other question that I've heard, and, and, and I've got the same curiosity about this one. Uh, we have heard for weeks experts telling us there is no value. If you, are, if you do not have COVID or you don't believe you do, there is no value to wearing a mask out in public that only medical professionals and possibly those who have it should have it. Well, now we're hearing rumblings from some corners that maybe everybody should be wearing a mask when they go out. What, what's the answer here? I'm so glad you're bringing that up, Scott, because I think it does require further clarification. I know we've addressed it on your show and many other places, but I think it is, you're absolutely right, it's resurfacing. Uh, unfortunately, there's been misleading evidence out there about it. We people and health experts have been reviewing all the evidence up to date on where we are in face masks. As of now, if you are a healthy individual, as in that, as in that you have no symptoms of coronavirus 19 or a similar influenza-like virus, the use of a face mask is not recommended. That is uh, uh, the guidance from the World Health Organization, from Public Health Agency of Canada. We also see that the CDC in the United States is sending the same message. Uh, the reason for that, just to be very clear, is the following. One, if you're wearing a face mask, it gives people a sense of false security. And what I mean by that is that people we see when they wear the mask, and you've seen it probably in the stores or when you walk, they're not putting it properly. Uh, so the misuse of it, where it's not uh, snugly around the nose, cheeks, and chin, really can increase the risk of virus because then you can also touch your eyes and nose and spread the virus around your face. So if they're not uh, properly positioned, that can increase the chance of you getting the virus. Disposable, disposable, uh, disposing of them has been a problem. They also need to be changed frequently. And the reality is we only have so many, and we're trying to make sure that they also stay. We have enough for our healthcare workers who are uh, genuinely struggling out there on our front line, trying to ensure that they have enough equipment for the virus to deal with this. It leads, I mean, this part of it, and I appreciate you addressing that, but it leads to one more, and we only have time, sure. unfortunately, for one more, but a troubling question in my mind, and that is we initially heard from the experts that coronavirus probably wasn't going to come to Canada, and then if it did, it wasn't going to be a big issue. And then when it came here that if you were asymptomatic, you probably weren't going to be giving it to anybody, you didn't have to self-quarantine. And then we heard that maybe six feet now isn't enough. And we've heard all kinds of things that almost systematically have a week or two later been shown to be not necessarily right or dead wrong. How, how much confidence do we have that we actually know what we're talking? You, you notwithstanding, I mean, you're the, you, I'll leave you up, but how much confidence do we have that we actually know what we're talking about at this point? I think that's a great point. I think I urge, including myself, for everybody to question uh, who is uh, claiming expertise on the topic matter. 
Uh, I think you're right. It's a fast-evolving situation. It's a game-changer. COVID-19 is challenging all of us, from the experts to novice people, to question the sources of evidence. I, myself, who's trained to look at research evidence and have a critical lens to it, I doubled, quadrupled check all the information before I speak on anything I'm asked on. Because you're right, the credibility of everybody is on the line, including uh, our policymakers, our experts, our journalists. We're all trying to do the best that we can. Uh, and I urge everybody with the increase in social media uh, use of uh, inappropriate and inaccurate messaging to put your own critical lens on and reach out to somebody that you believe is an expert and you can verify that they are to, to, uh, to find out if this is the correct information or not. And segments like this one you and I are having are so crucial for that because that's what we're trying to do is get the right information out there. Dr. Ahmad Faraz Khalid, uh, listen, I really do appreciate it always, and I know we'll be talking to you again before too long. Thanks for doing this. Good speaking to you. Have a good night. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Even with coronavirus and everything that we're going through right now, life goes on, and so does, unfortunately, death. This is, and I'm not just talking about coronavirus. People clearly have lost their lives to that, but there are lots of other people in our city, in our region, in our country who have died in the last two weeks because of old age or because of cancer or because of heart disease or because of accidents or whatever. People die. That is sadly, I mean, it's, it's kind of gloomy and it's kind of depressing in a sense, but that is sadly a part of life. Death is a part of life. But here's the challenge right now. We now have rules in effect that say you cannot have a gathering of more than five people. You're supposed to stay six feet apart at least. How do you possibly have a funeral under those circumstances? Well, let me bring in Bill Dermody. Uh, the last name is probably familiar to most people in this city. He is the owner and president of PX Dermody Funeral Homes. He joins us now. Bill, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Scott. Good evening to you. So have funerals, as we have come to know them, essentially stopped right now? Scott, um, the registrar um, of the Bereavement Authority of Ontario has issued a directive that we're permitted to have up to 10 people attend um, at at a service or an interment. And so this is one of the exceptions to the five-person gathering rules. It still is, however, a challenge. Um, You know, many... Uh, families have more than 10 people. And I would say most, right? Wish to attend. Exactly. Most. Grandpa or grandma dies and you've got a couple of kids and they've got kids and suddenly you're easily over 10. Well, that's absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, your, your selection of music was very, very appropriate because what we've observed, obviously, over the years and most families have observed is that when a death occurs, people want to come together. It's a, it's a natural almost motivation to gather. So what is happening now then? If you can't have a big gathering, so your friends probably can't come because maybe you can squeak a family into 10, but if your family's bigger than 10, what, do you, what are people doing? Sure. So w- what families are doing during this time in many respects, of course, is they're making extraordinary um, arrangements. And so uh, immediate families are making arrangements so that uh, their loved one might have some form of a service or an interment if that's uh, appropriate. Um, they're also uh, thinking about the future, however, and, and manner in which they can come together um, when these present circumstances hopefully have uh, have left us. 
do you expect do you do you expect that there will be a a, a run, uh, I don't know what the right phrase is a run on celebrations of life or services when we can get back to normal that all these things are going to want to pop up then Scott I I do think that in a private sense and in a public sense you will witness that you will witness uh, private gatherings where where that extended family and friends can come together when they were unable to uh, during the present circumstances and I think you may also see more public gatherings. They may take different forms. Uh, they may even be community in nature uh, to honor those we've lost over this period of time. Have you come across any people who have been surprised by this? Because let's say your elderly parent or grandparent is sick and dying. You're not really thinking about the funeral necessarily. And then all of a sudden they're gone and we're in the middle of this. And they call you and suddenly they go, oh, we can't have a funeral right now. Has, has that caught people off guard? There have been some who have been who have been caught off guard by it. It's just as you've just put it. It's not something they naturally think about, especially if they're there supporting a loved one in, uh, in the final stages of life. Um, I will say, however, that what we've observed is everyone has been understanding. These are difficult adjustments for families. Mm. I don't want to make light of it, but they've un- they understand uh, why these measures have had to be taken, and they really have supported us as uh, funeral service providers and trying to do the best for them. Uh, I don't want to get too deep because I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm certainly not a funeral director and and there's a lot of areas here that I I, I don't want to be assuming stuff, but my understanding always has been that the point of a funeral in the broadest sense is not for the deceased, obviously, they're not there, but for the person's family and friends to say goodbye and to grieve. And it's an important part of the closure and the closing and closing a chapter and that kind of thing. So uh, if I'm right, this has got to be very distressing then for a lot of families when they can't do this. Well, you are right. For many families, I won't say for all, but for many families, this can really be a, a, a disconnection in at least the start of the process you've just described. Um, And that's why I think for many families, they're going to be thinking about ways in which um, they can celebrate, they can honor, uh, they can have that religious or spiritual ceremony um, after uh, the circumstances change. And, you know, even I suppose uh, worse, I don't know if it's worse. I mean, it's all relative, but anyone who's ever been to a funeral or a visitation has seen lots of people hugging each other because that's or shaking hands or doing something to console the person. You take that out of the equation now and it's a whole other thing on top of it. it there's no question about it. One of, one of the things about um, a funeral, and this goes for many other kinds of uh, celebrations as well, but there's almost an exchange of a form of energy uh, between people. They're there to give comfort. They're there to uh, console, but they're also there to, to try to support and unfortunately, under the present circumstances, with the, the guidelines that have been put in place, that is not going to be happening as uh, as frequently as often as it may, because people can't go home and do it privately. Uh, they're still being asked, uh, and quite properly so, to restrict the gatherings within their own homes. So what are you seeing people doing instead at, the, at receptions, or not receptions, at services, or at receiving lines, or, or, or not receiving, visitations, pardon me. Um, so we have had uh, families who do gather, and again, mindful of uh, the number that can gather, and that's, uh, that's 10, including clergy, uh, although it, it excludes funeral home staff. Um, we have had uh, requests for uh, people to webcast. We've had requests for um, digital presentations, uh, can be memory 
types of uh, uh, of electronic uh, uh, sharing going on in the internet and so on. Um, we've certainly seen an increase in social media use, hmm. so that where people can't gather in person, they're trying to do it using other other media. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about one of the things going on right now that we don't probably think about that much because we don't really want to think about it that much, and that is death and not from coronavirus necessarily, just in general, uh, part of the process in our society when someone passes away is that we have a funeral. We do something to come together and honor that person. You can't really do that right now. So how are we dealing with this? Well, we're continuing our conversation with Bill Dermody, who is the owner and president of Dermody, PX Dermody Funeral Homes. You can go on their website if you want to find out more about them, pxdermodyfuneral.com. Uh, Bill, would it be safe to say that, um, I mean, your funeral home has been around since, if I read it right, 1922. Uh, and so, I mean, that that takes us through the Second World War. I don't even know if the Second World War, if you know, had this kind of impact. Have we ever had anything like this before? Scott, actually, we have in our community, of course, in 1918 and 1919. Uh, we suffered tremendous losses because of the Spanish influenza Indeed, uh, a brother of my grandfather, our founder, Perce Dermody, uh, was lost to Spanish influenza. And at that time, um, they put rules in effect that wouldn't permit funerals to be carried out um, and limited gatherings. I'm not going to say in exactly the same way, but in a similar way. Were you already, did you have a, was there a funeral home, a Dermody funeral home at that time, though? There was. My grandfather actually, at the time, had started working for um, the two brothers that owned uh, Hmm. the funeral home on East Avenue, the Gormley brothers, and it became uh, Gormley and Dermody and then PX Dermody as the 1920s and and 30s evolved. Is part of the role, um, because how weird things are right now and the things we can't do, does this make your role or the role of the other funeral directors change? Do you become more of a consoler and more of a psychologist, or does it make it less of that because you can't really be all that close to people? How, how does that work for the staff now? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm going to say, again, from our observations of all funeral service personnel, and I include people from other funeral homes, from cemeteries, from crematoria, and so on, that they have um, played an expanded role that they've had to show that uh, compassion and that understanding, that reassurance uh, for families that um, even though the process may not be what uh, they would want for their loved ones, that there will be opportunities in the future. And what they're doing for their loved ones today is the very best that they can be expected to do. Have you noticed any, um, have you noticed people being affected by this absence of closure that a funeral gives, that they can't do this? Have you seen different responses from people than usual? So a, a couple of different things I can, I can share without looking at any individuals or family, individual families or otherwise. Um, but it, it would be the case that um, there will be people who will be feeling they didn't do perhaps the right thing or the best they could have done for, for their loved one. And there we have a great role to play to assure them that they're, they're working within existing parameters and they can't do anything else. There are going to be others as well 
who, as we can appreciate now that we're hearing about um, healthcare facilities, limiting the interaction between families and their loved ones, who will be starting this whole um, challenging episode well before a person dies because they mm. may not be able to visit as often, if at all, um, with their loved one. And so it really does have a lot of uh, a lot of consequences for people. Are more people asking for cremation so that they could then take the urn or take the ashes home and have their own celebration in their house? I'll answer it this way. Uh, cremation certainly has become extremely popular within our community and other communities uh, in Ontario over uh, over recent years. Um, however, I can't say that it, that I'm aware of anybody or that our staff is aware of anybody who has selected cremation for that reason okay, alone. In right. other words, they would have had a burial, but they prefer cremation because of these circumstances. What about the flip side? And and I, I mean, this is uh, this is probably ghoulish to ask this question, but has anybody asked you to keep the body until we can get together and have a proper funeral? Um, so we that request has not been made of us. Um, I will say to you that part of the work that's been done by the Registrar of the Bereavement Authority of Ontario, um, that's our regulator, has been to encourage people to um, try to adapt to these circumstances and to understand that there's a limit to what can be done uh, under mm. these circumstances and has asked us as, as licensees um, to be able to accommodate burials in an efficient way where we can. I only have 20 seconds, and this probably takes more than that, uh, so do your best if you can. But uh, is there any kind of, it's a respiratory virus we're dealing with, so you need to be breathing, I guess, or spitting or something. But if you were to get a body that had died of coronavirus, do you have to handle it differently? So our approach is the following. It, it's, not the, it's not the person who has died that is the risk. Uh, the virus, as we now know, can be anywhere. So we've had to take special precautions when we're making and when we're bringing people into our care, simply because we're interacting in hospital and long-term care environments and so on. Hmm. So we've we've had to adopt some pretty stringent guidelines in that in that regard. Bill Dermody, owner and president of PX Dermody Funeral Homes. Uh, listen, I appreciate the time. It's not always a fun thing to talk about, but I absolutely appreciate you coming on and talking about it. Well, thank you, Scott, and I wish you and of course everyone in our community. Uh, the, the very best under these circumstances. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.